Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. You're listening to episode 37. When I started to think about writing a, a mystery, I wanted it to feature translation. And, yeah. I, and I, I like the way translation allows you to uh, enter different spaces at the same time. I was sort of intrigued by the idea of um, the main character entering into a translation and sort of finding there something that then spills over into her uh, current reality. This is author Rebecca Copeland. Her mystery, The Kimono Tattoo, follows an American woman working in Japan as a translator. It turns out Rebecca knows a lot about translation, about going beyond the words. I think that I teach translation and my students get very concerned about fidelity and translating the word exactly as they think it, you know, what it means. And I'm constantly trying to help them get past that because I think that's one way to ensure that you haven't translated the text or the art. You know, if you're only looking at the words, you might miss the meaning. (laughs) Yes, yes, that, you know, she actually says, I entered into the weft and warp of the words, unraveling the threads and reweaving them into a new work. And I have to tell you that when I read that, it also reminded me of narration. Mm-hmm. You know, that you are taking someone else's art and entering into it and living it. That's such, I like your analogy because we often think of translation only as moving from one, you know, one text to another, but I like to tell my students that we translate every day. You know, we're, we're constantly translating, trying to translate our inchoate emotions into words in some way. And, and so as humans, we're constantly dealing in different um, registers and and trying to navigate that. So Ruth sort of epitomizes that because she is biologically an American, but sort of culturally a Japanese. So she's constantly kind of caught between two systems. Yes. And she explains a lot for the reader, the etiquette, Mm -hmm. you know, she'll say, oh, I would never do that because that would signify this or that would symbolize that you sort of imbue the reader with an an understanding of the etiquette of place and how things are different from Mm -hmm. one culture to the next. And there's a lot that she navigates as an American in Japan. Matter of fact, at one point she says they won't even, she could be speaking Japanese and they can't even, they can't even register that this redheaded barbarian is (laughs) is actually speaking their language. So she, she comes right up against people having assumptions about her. Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. She's approached by a woman to do a translation job. 
And this woman makes reference to a prior job that she's done. Um, oh, yes. A historical fiction that she's done where she's met the author. And in that historical fiction, uh, it involves a famous kimono shop. Um, so I did wonder, as you were creating these sort of fictions within a fiction in your novel, was that real? Was that something you researched and learned about in Japan? Um, well, the Yuzen dying process is, of course, real. And the, um, the man who, is, who tends to be credited with developing the process, Miyazaki Yuzen, is a historical person. And so that much is based in history. And, and there was an uh, important fabric shop that sold kimono and, and textiles um, at that time that I refer to in the, in the story. But the, the love affair and the, the contest for the empress, who, was, who is a real historical empress, that's all fictional. I was basing that on, on stories that I have read of the difficulty that apprentices had. Traditional arts usually involved a master and apprentice kind of relationship where the master would impart the art or, or the skill to a set of apprentices and, and they would labor for free in exchange for learning the art form. It often happened that an apprentice would then get to marry the boss's, the master's daughter oh. and, and inherit the shop. So this ill-fated apprentice is you know falling in love with the master's daughter and and wanting to prove that he has the goods you know that he can become the heir to the shop and uh, of course disaster falls (laughs) yes it's kind it's it's a sort of it's almost kind of mythical tragedy like she says they all die in the end all but the kimono kimonos take on a life of their own that's to say you don't own a kimono a kimono owns you one of my interests in in the novel was to celebrate the kimono. So I think from a modern perspective, we tend to think of the kimono as such a rigid, uh, restricting kind of garment, and it wasn't always. It it was it could be very freeing. The, mm. the way that women or or men could. Um, put their ensemble together, really allowed them to express their taste or their interests or their character. Kimono is a, a, a kind of garment that requires layers. So I wanted to play with that notion of the, the, the text has layers in it, the, the stories within stories. And I yes. was interested in this process of peeling back layers to get to what it is we are after and to get to the truth to get to the truth okay let's pause right there what i want you to hear next is something the main character ruth is translating it reads like a letter and i wanted to share it because it includes a philosophy of kimono august 29 1982 shugakun Hazamacho, Kyoto. Hot and muggy, with the likelihood of rain. I love kimonos. I love the story each one tells, implicit in the weave, imbued in the dye. A little old-fashioned, perhaps, maybe even a little superstitious. But I believe, 
each kimono contains the spirit of its creator. The materials used to make kimonos are obtained from living beings. The silk spun from the body of the worm, or from the sinewy fibers of the flax and hemp. The dyes used on the fabrics are all derived from living plants, flowers, grasses, and more. And it is the craftsman, then, who breathes new life into the lives pulled from the earth. It is the magic of the human hands and the wonder in the human heart that turns these natural elements into beautiful fabrics animated by the bodies of their wearers. I know, that was short. I am working on narrating this audiobook right now. And there's another scene I want to share with you, where you find out about the title, a scene where a body is discovered. But first, I want to go back to the conversation with Rebecca so you can hear why she set her multi-layered mystery in Japan. Your dedication in the book is to mom and dad who first took me to Japan. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how you, how your experience with Japan began. Well, I actually was, I was born in Japan. Uh, my parents were missionaries there. And so my, my first experience was as a tiny little infant, but my, um, my parents had resigned their position. And when I was three weeks old, I think they we they moved back to the United States. And so I have oh. no memory, obviously, <laughs> of Japan at that point. But then when I was a junior in college, my parents decided to return to the mission field and mm. they gave me the opportunity to, to go with them for one year, study abroad uh, as a junior. Oh. And I have to be honest, I I <laughs> I didn't want to go. I mean, I was like, leave my friends, you know, why? And um, yeah. so I had to sort of be convinced, but that year changed everything. I was just smitten with Japanese culture from that point on. Well, and that's a really pivotal point in maturation, right? You know, that so. those years of college where we are sort of defining who we are really as people outside of our mom and dad. Right. Uh, so to be submerged at that point, I could see how that would be life-changing. Right. I try to get my students to study abroad it, because I tell them, you know, you learn a lot about another culture, but you really learn more about yourself when, once you step outside of your comfort zone. And so it, it really was a pivotal uh, experience for me. <laughs> I think that is really an excellent point that people sometimes think of study abroad as immersing yourself in another culture. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's a lot that, that you learn about yourself whenever you go outside of a comfort zone. I think so. Yeah. And study <laughs> abroad is like the, like the epitome of going outside your comfort zone, right? Yeah. But for me, it was a, I kind of cheated a little bit because my parents were there. So I, oh, you know, right. I was living with them. And another side benefit for me is that I got to know my parents better because mm. I, you know, I was the fourth child and then we, I have a younger brother. So this was the first time I had them all to myself. Oh, <laughs> I like that because we don't often get to see our parents as people. Right. And so 
you got to be part of their experience there and the work that they were doing right. as a young adult where you could really appreciate exactly all that that entailed. Yeah, that was a gift, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, the location is, is really very vivid. I think that's one of the compliments to give you as an author is Thank that you. I did feel, I'm not surprised that you were there, you know, because it is so real in your descriptions and so uh, vibrant in the way that you take the reader right to these paths and these shops and these um, the places that your protagonist goes. So your character, the, the story is told through someone named Ruth. Yes. Who, uh, like you, is an American. Yes. And one of my favorite things is there's in chapter one, she talks about her name in Japanese. Rusu? Rusu? Uh-huh. And she says, that's what uh, the Japanese call being away from home. And it sounds like her name. So can uh-huh. you tell me how you chose that name and why that sort of play on words was important? I, you know, it just, uh, everything um, fell in place. You know, I, I didn't know what her name was. And I was thinking um, maybe, she, you know, her, her name could be something that has a Japanese equivalent like Naomi or Naomi, uh, Naomi right. is a Japanese name. And in, at some point, Ruth just stood out to me. And uh, then as I was writing, I was thinking, wow, you know, Ruth in, in Japanese would sound like Rusu, which sounds like uh, to be away from home. And I thought, well, that makes sense. because <laughs> She's always away from home. Or her, There's sort of a sense of homelessness about her. I think that she feels very attached to Kyoto and, and that's where she um, really has her identity pegged. It, it, she belongs to Kyoto, but she doesn't really. And so, right. you know, there's always this sort of sense of drift uh, with, with Ruth. It's a line that Ruth is walking that I really, I just really liked. And so she finds sort of her compliment in Maho, the young yes. Japanese woman who, really feels um, out of place in, in Japan and is much more comfortable in California. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, she has some of the best conversations I think in the book happen with Maho that she's, this is a coworker yes. who is not a very traditional Japanese young woman. She has spent some time in the US and yes. um, in Ventura. She's good friends with Ruth and there's a part where Ruth is explaining the minute I leave Japan, as soon as the airplane wheels lose contact with the runway, I start to feel ungrounded too. That's, I mean, I've had that experience and um, I've spent a lot of time in Japan after I was there initially as a, um, a undergraduate junior in college, I kept going back. And um, for a long time, I lived in off and on in Tokyo. I think the longest span was I had five years of living in, in Tokyo. And I began to feel very comfortable in Japan, in Tokyo. And when I would, you know, I'd have to go back to the United States to, to visit family and just, you know, be an American. And um, when I would return to Japan, I just remember the, the jet would, would land um, at the airport and I would just feel... I'm back, you know, I'm home. And I, I would say uh, yeah. in Japanese, we say tadaima, which means I've returned. <laughs> and I yeah. you know, would just say that in my heart. <laughs> That's so interesting that some place that is so very different from 
from the American landscape, you know, just, Mm -hmm. you know, like what are some of the things that you could say to help people understand, you know, that are, that are really different when you're in America versus when you're in Japan? In in Japan, um, first of all, you don't depend on uh, individual automobiles to get you around. You almost everything, unless you're way out in the countryside, almost everything is mass transit or foot. You know, you you do a lot of walking. Uh, wow. So because you're walking, I think you pay more attention to what's you know your surroundings. You you notice, oh, that garden is beautiful right now, or <laughs> they've changed their seasonal display or, or, you know, you just notice more um, Mm -hmm. things in shop windows and the people you encounter. And it it seems even in a place as frantic as Tokyo, there's, there's more of a sense of neighborhood and community in some respects than in the United States where we just jump in our car, at least if Mm -hmm. we live in the suburb and take off with really no kind of encounter with the people around us often. Yes, I think that's a really good description just in the way that we get around Mm -hmm. changes the way we interact with place. I think so. Right. Yeah. Just our mode of transportation can change things because you might not know someone that lives one block away from you in the suburbs. But if you had to walk that every day, you would encounter those people. You would see them on their porches. You would see them outside. Um, I have been in Tokyo and I found it to be so calm even though you just word, used the word frantic, right? <laughs> um, but I felt like, wow, I can't believe there's 30 million people here because the level of noise in the public transportation zone, especially like just going out and off the trains, it was quiet. It was uh, people, people were not uh, yelling across the crowd. It, it, you know, I just felt like there was a respect for everyone else around you always, everywhere I went that, you know, that my son was living there and he would say, I could, I would say, well, let's pick up something to go and we'll eat on the way. And he said, yeah, we just don't do that. (laughs) That's right. Everything's very clean. You know, everybody's, you're absolutely right. People are concerned with not inconveniencing the people around them. So you don't want to eat something because it, you know, it might smell or it might splash or, you know, might make something dirty. Right. Um, (laughs) It was interesting because to me, I thought, oh, on an island where there it's so densely populated mm-hmm. that it, that this idea of what is best for the collective sort of emerges, you know, in the way that you get around, in the way that you interact with people. Um, and that you know, in it's um, it's very thoughtful, but it can also there's a darker side too that it can also be um, oppressive, right? If you're constantly concerned with the other, then you you sometimes deny your own interests, I guess. Yes, that's a really good point. I think there's a real balance between yes. this, you know, what's best for the individual versus what's best for the collective. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and we're almost like polar examples of that, you know, and so to travel between those two worlds must have been a real shift for you personally. Yes. It would, I mean, there would be culture shock in both directions. (laughs) Right, right. So this is a good spot to pause and hear the other scene I wanted to share with you. This begins with our main character, Ruth, working late at night, deep in her translation of a novel that is confusing and scaring her. 
took another sip of wine and returned to the manuscript. The narrative style of the piece shifted yet a third time. We moved from a diary to a letter, and what appeared to be a straightforward first-person narrative, more representative of Shotaro Tani's earlier writing. Her letter was simple. Come home now, she wrote. It's urgent. Meet me at the Benibana Inn, Shiobara Hot Springs, in Nasu. I'll be there by 5 p.m. on May 7th. We agreed not to contact one another until father had died. Satoko would then be able to free herself of Akira. I was pretty sure father was still alive, but the urgency in Satoko's letter compelled me to act. I hurriedly packed and caught a flight to Narita, then took the train to Shiobara. My connections were bad, and by the time I got to the Benibana, I'd been on the road for two days. It was an odd place to meet. I appreciated that it was far from Kyoto, and that's probably why Satoko chose the site. But there were inns closer to Kyoto that would have been equally discreet. By the time I reached the inn, Satoko had already checked in, but she was not to be found in her room, the gardens, or the baths. When she still had not returned by 6 p.m., I decided to go look for her. It was unusually chilly for May. There'd been a snowfall a few days earlier, and patches still lingered here and there. I had only a cotton jacket, so I walked briskly along the stone path until I came to the suspension bridge spanning the Hokigawa River. Uncertain where to go, I stepped out onto the bridge and looked down on the rushing waters below. I shivered against the damp mist rising up from the spray. The sun had set, and the river was etched in shadows. Even so, from the bridge, I saw what looked like a woman resting along the rocky shore just out of reach of the water. She was lying on her stomach with her head cradled in her arms, her hair spread haphazardly around her. Difficult to discern in the waning light, she seemed to be wearing a richly patterned kimono. The way she was lying, with her hair spread out in all directions, I was surprised her kimono was not in disarray. I hurried down from the ridge, unable to imagine how she had come to be there. Had she slipped? As I drew closer, I realized she was not wearing a kimono. She was naked. Had her body been painted? Stumbling over the rocky ground, I crept up beside her, calling to her. She didn't move. I jostled her shoulder, noticing when I did her skin was cold to the touch. I also noticed the design coloring her back, legs, and arms was not paint. It was a tattoo, or tattoos. Across her left shoulder ranged a design of red maple leaves, each leaf so finely wrought you could feel them shimmer in the light of the newly risen moon. Along the other shoulder was a cluster of cherry blossoms, tissue pale, almost translucent. From the branches of both the maple and the cherry dangled Tanzaku poetry slips. Each slip was so intricately painted 
the woman's skin became the washy paper of the slips, lightly flecked with different squares of pigment, resembling crushed, dried flowers and grasses. If it were lighter, I'm sure I could have read the poems on each of the slips. That's how fine the tattoos were. Hesitating, afraid of what I'd see, I rolled the woman over. Her eyes were open, staring but unseeing, and her mouth was covered in a thick, dark blood. Satoko! That familiar face was so grotesquely displayed, I wanted to hug her to me. But I was afraid. There was something ghastly about her lying there naked under the moonlight. When I glanced down, I saw her entire torso was covered in tattoos from her collarbone to the midline of her thighs. All the tattoos were of kimono motifs, fans, incense burners, peonies, and scrolls. I could not stand to look. I struggled to my feet and stepped away from her. Her head rocked slightly with the violence of my action, and when it settled, her eyes stared up at me, empty. I should have at least closed her eyes or left my jacket to cover her, but I couldn't think of anything except leaving. Why had she sent for me? Or had she? Anyone could have written that letter with its cryptic demand. But if Satoko didn't write it, who did? And what might that person have in store for me? I rushed back to the Benibana, uncertain of my next step. I should raise the alarm, inform the police, recover my sister's body. But what then? What would happen when my own whereabouts were discovered? How would I explain what had happened? What if my presence here implicated me in Satoko's death? I could well imagine my father trying to pin the blame on me. What a convenient way to get rid of me and simultaneously get his revenge. But would he really have his own daughter killed? Was Satoko murdered? Stripped of her clothes, covered in tattoos? Something evil had taken place. What are the life lessons, the essential things you had to communicate to someone else? This thing is essential to me. What's most essential to you? Well, I think for me in, in the book, I'm concerned about misrepresentation, mistranslation, and missed opportunities that we're, particularly Americans, are so comfortable in our environment that we don't try, many of us don't try to go beyond our hometown. We don't try to go beyond mm -hmm. our language. Um, we don't try to go beyond our taste palette. So, <laughs> you know, I want people to read the book and say, oh, okay, Japan is, I'd like to go there. <laughs> I want to go to that. I want to go to uh, Philosopher's Path and see right. you know, where Ruth went. And I want to taste that. And I want people to accept people from other cultures as being allowed to be different, being worthy <laughs> of acceptance. So that's important to me. I hope you will leave the comfort of home 
with Rebecca Copeland's novel about identity, loss, and reconciliation. The Kimono Tattoo is from Brother Mockingbird Publishing. That's brothermockingbird.net. The audiobook is being produced by Northern Lake Audio and will be available in early 2022. I want to thank Johnny Bernard for putting me on the path to meet Rebecca. And, as always, thank you for listening.